Tom Hanks is Otto. He's seen it all. Otto? Otto? O-T-T-O. You don't hear that name very often. I do. He's a man who gets easily annoyed. What are you doing? Parallel parking. Parallel to what? He has had enough. Are you always this unfriendly? I am not unfriendly. Okay, you're like a warm cuddle. But he's finding his joy again in the most unlikely place. I'm not sure about this. It's gonna be very fun. A man called Otto, only in cinemas now. With thanks to Bailey's, this is the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast. Celebrating women's writing, sharing our creativity, our voices and our perspectives. All while championing the very best fiction written by women around the world. I'm Yomi Adegake, your host for season three of the Women's Prize podcast. We have a phenomenal lineup of guests for 2021 and I guarantee you will be taking away plenty of reading recommendations. Each bookshelfy episode, we ask an inspiring woman to share the story of her life through five different books by women. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Bookshelfy. We are still practicing safe social distancing and this podcast is being recorded remotely. Let me start by reminding you that this year's shortlist is out and the six brilliant authors and their books can all be found on our website www.womensprizeforfiction.co.uk. Today's guest is journalist and writer Paris Lees. Paris is the editor of Meta, a new publication devoted to gender issues. A contributing editor at British Vogue, she has columns with the Gay Times and Diva and appears in The Guardian, Vice and Pink News. In 2013, she was given the title of the most influential LGBT person in Britain and became the first high-profile transgender woman to break into the mainstream media. Her new book, What It Feels Like for a Girl, is a memoir on growing up as a working-class kid in Nottingham, and it's out now. This episode contains some strong language. Welcome to the podcast, Paris. How are you doing today? I am so good. I've been looking forward to this for like the longest time ever. I love you and I love being (laughs) on this podcast. Your book is out today, the 27th of May. How does it feel for your excellent book? And I do not just say that. I mean, we've spoken at length about how brilliant and experimental and just interesting I think it is. How does it feel for it to finally be out in the world? Because you said it was several years in the making. Honestly, it's just like the most surreal experience ever because I I feel like it became part of my identity. Like I'm writing a book. Oh, I can't do this because I'm writing a book. Can't come out this weekend because I've got a deadline for the book. And it and it sort of became who I am. And I really I I've I've got this idea in my head for a, a fiction piece of like somebody who's just writing a book for their whole life because I <laughs> I literally felt that 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 was just who who I am now. You know, I'm somebody who writes a book. So it's 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 utterly surreal and and to have the kind of feedback that the book has received is I'm just I'm 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 a mess I'm crying like every day (laughs) it's just so overwhelming because I think if you spend seven years writing a book it's not really enough for people to go oh that was nice you kind of want people (laughs) to be sort of getting a bit obsessed with it right in the way that you know I've fallen in love with books over the years uh which is um I'm really excited to be talking about some of them today and I you know you want people to connect with your book on that level so it's it's just incredible and it's it's terrifying mm, absolutely the praise is absolutely all deserved so in terms of you I mean you said you've been writing it for seven years how much would you say has changed over that period well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because 
when this was commissioned, we hadn't had Brexit, Trump, uh, coronavirus, or even the Scottish referendum, actually. Doesn't that feel like a million years ago? And it's just like emerging into this world that is is literally burning, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm really concerned about climate change. And it just feels like everything is a constant argument all the time and and it's it's really weird like i mean i'm older than when it you know it just feels like it was a different me who got this book commissioned and it was a different world it's just bizarre it's just and it's really bizarre to be putting yourself out there at a time when the world feels increasingly hostile it's it's really scary as well mm-hmm. as being wonderful yeah we're going to talk a little bit more about that um in a moment and but i also wanted to ask you whether you'd always been a big reader and whether you feel like you have read more or less over lockdown oh i think that i haven't read as much as i thought that i would read in lockdown i will tell you that i got into audiobooks which i've always been really resistant yes. to so <laughs> i was i was never into kindle right because the thing is i'm quite an old fashioned girl yummy and I just like a book, you know, I always say with, you know, these online magazines, it's not a magazine unless you can roll it up and hit somebody over the head with it. And, and I want, I want to feel a book. I want to see the soup stains on it. You know, <laughs> um, it's, it's a physical object. And I, so I never got into the Kindle thing and I was a bit suspicious of the, the audible thing, because for me, that's just like listening to a lecture or a radio drama or a monologue or something, which is not the same process as reading. Mm-hmm. I like reading a book, which is maybe very a black and white way of looking at it. But I got into audiobooks over lockdown. Love a self-help book. I could have come up with like five different self-help books if this wasn't more geared towards fiction. One thing I will say I got into reading French in French over lockdown because I've been studying French. I am, I'm literally one of those people who learned a language in lockdown. And one of my books today is a French book. And and we're going to talk about that because that's a major, major, major thing for me. The idea that I could read a, a book in French. So there has been that. Very impressive. And I'm also very happy to hear that the audio book agenda is continuing because I'm a big, big sort of champion for them. I love them. Um, so we're gonna well, we've, got, we've got one for you. I've created one especially for you, Yomi. I'm you know, music to my ears, honestly. You're gonna <laughs> so love your, your first book, Shelby, is The Life and Loves of a She-Devil by Faye Weldon. Paris, can you please give a brief summary of what this book is about and what drew you to it? So this is a book about a woman who has been wronged. She's downtrodden. She's disrespected. And um, she, she really reaches breaking points and she embarks upon a course of action to seek power, money, and revenge. Um, Mm. And my mum had an old copy of it laying around when I was uh, a kid. And I think I picked it up when I was like, maybe 13, maybe 14. And I'd never really read like an adult book before then. So I think I'd read some sort of like maybe Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, possibly like an abridged version for kids. But this was like the first sort of grown up book that I'd read. And I just became obsessed with it there's also this like physical transformation that she goes through which like is not rocket science to work out you know why these themes appealed to me 
Um, and uh, yeah, she's just really, really, really funny. And I think she occupies quite an interesting space, I think, because she's not, I don't think that she's seen as sort of trash, but I don't think she's seen as high literature. Mm. Um, and I think um, it, it's hard for me culturally to sort of read how the books were received at the time because it's it's before my time. So this book came out in like the, the mid eighties or something, but I get the impression that it was sort of marketed as sort of like quite a mainstream mid-market kind of thing. Mm. I don't know if that'd be fair to say, but um, so I don't know if I'm supposed to like her or, or if she's seen as a particularly intelligent author, but I love her and I don't care about all of that stuff. And I just think she makes loads of really hilarious witty observations about life and I think you know just stuff that you encounter when you're a teenager and some of it sticks and some of it you look back on and you think but I'm so embarrassed but I didn't know any better mm-hmm. this has really stuck with me my whole life and uh just I've probably read it more than any other book it's just yeah she's hilarious I love her you mentioned that it was one you know the most grown-up book that you had read were you someone who read a lot of books or is that something that you came to sort of you know later in your teens as a child did you read a lot yeah I used to walk to school reading uh books in my hand and I think it comes from feeling really uh uncomfortable actually because I I you know I say this all the time I was very unhappy growing up right and I but it wasn't just unhappy. I always felt anxious all the time, constantly, never felt safe. And I think it was, it was a distraction thing. And I, and I used to read, uh, I remember reading The Witches by Roald Dahl that way. And I read that in like a day, which is a story that my dad still loves telling to this day. Um, and, and, and weirdly, I, I spoke to him the other day and he was saying that he used to have to shout up and, and tell me to turn the lights off at night because I would stay up reading and then come down for breakfast like really bloodshot in the morning so for me it was a form of escape reading and I and I would just pick up my mum's old copies of you know she had like loads of Ruth Rendell crime uh, novels uh, laying around and she has another pen name Barbara Vine who was really I, I really I really like her Barbara Vine books they were good books but they weren't um we didn't really have the classics lying around is, 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 is what I would say, but, but there were books and honestly, I would read anything. If, 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 if I didn't have a book around, I'd read a dictionary or the back of a packet of cereal, you know, like I just always wanted to be reading. So this is before social media, right. And Wikipedia and everything. Um, so I feel kind of, lucky in a way because I don't know if I I would have fallen in love with books in the same way if I'd had the distraction of social media at that at that time yeah I heavily relate to that I don't I think I'd have been reading basically Facebook posts and like tweets if I didn't grow up sort of pre all of that yeah so you said that you were you know so since you were you were definitely a huge reader but how did writing come into equation was that something that you were keen on early in your life also and did you always for instance want to be a journalist yeah I I always loved writing and I always loved creative writing at school and you know here's the thing you know I was in an ex-mining town in Nottinghamshire Mm. so my access to culture was limited shall we say Mm. so you know I I wasn't going to the theatre or you know I didn't you know didn't have a piano for piano lessons I didn't have a French tutor or anything like that so really reading and writing are for me the most sort of 
there's something very democratic about them in that any anybody can do it pretty much if if you've got a library which we did in 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 my hometown and you know i obviously loved english at the school it was it was the subject that i excelled in and just always i was thinking about this actually the other day uh i used to walk home and i, and I remember looking at ad- adverts on billboards and thinking that's interesting why have they used that word and not this word and i was just fascinated in where words came from and the different connotations of words and if you swapped this word out for another word it brings that a slightly different meaning and i would characterize it as an excess of thoughts right and and i think this is what makes me a writer because i just have all of these thoughts and they need to go somewhere but with the journalism thing no i, I had no desire whatsoever to be a journalist but when i was at university and i was becoming a bit more politically aware for the first time in my life and you know thinking okay there's newspapers i, I read the news and the only time I saw trans people discussed in the media was as, as, as objects of ridicule or, or pity or disgust. And there were just these really horrible people saying really, really nasty, inaccurate things about people like mm-hmm. me in broadsheet newspapers, a, along with everywhere else. And I just remember thinking, well, I could do that. I'm good. I'm good with words. I think... I could be one of those people who appears on the news or writes in newspapers. I have those skills and I want to have my voice heard. Mm-hmm. And I'm proud of that part of my career, but honestly, this new phase writing much more literary stuff is mm-hmm. um, absolutely what I, I want to do going forwards. So, but I always knew I'd write a book. Definitely. Mm. I've always known that. Thank you so much, Paris. We're just about to move on to your second bookshelfie, but you mentioned that you grew up in. Now I see Hucknall, I can't, I can't say, I say Ucknall, like it's written in your book with the kind of apostrophe before the U. And, you know, you kind of, you know, touched on your life and livelihood there. And, you know, obviously that's, that, that's where, you know, Byron grows up um, in your book. And I'm interested in, because obviously, you know, it's, sort of auto-fiction memoir but the, 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 then parts of it I believe are fictionalized as someone who's written about their life um, on the internet how I suppose nervous were you about writing this book because so much of yourself and your personal story is in it did you feel in any way exposed or did you feel as though because you've already been somebody who writes about their life anyway that you already sort of prepared for it well, first of all, let's let's get this pronunciation of Hucknall right. So, would, <laughs> would you would you like to hear the 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 absolute gold standard of? I'd of, love of nothing more. How Hit the lo- the locals pronounce it. So it's Hucknall. Hucknall. <laughs> but Hucknall. We 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 got the tram round about the end of where where my my book ends. So like in the mid late late noughties, we 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 got the tram, and I remember the first time that I got on it, it said, "This tram is for." Hucknall. And I, <laughs> and I remember thinking, where? Oh, uh, oh, I think I'm on the wrong one. I, I, where, where? Yeah. So, so nobody, oh. nobody pronounces the, the, the hate. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's, well, it's this thing, isn't it? Where I think that women in particular are forced in, not forced, but shall we say encouraged and rewarded for sort of confessional journalism. Right. 
in a way that that men aren't. And I think also as marginalized people, we feel that we have to regurgitate our trauma yes. for sort of um you know wider society sort of you know uh consumption um you know and, and if, if we cry for you will you be a bit nicer to us kind of thing um and i i think also particularly for for trans people but i i do see it for for people in, in you know who are oppressed for you know various different diversity strands mm -hmm. i feel that they need to explain their difference or why they are different and um and, and I definitely feel that that has influenced my career. And also, frankly, let's be honest, it, it's, it's a way to get your voice heard. You mm -hmm. know, I can get a byline advice or The Guardian if I'm prepared to share my pain, you know, because I'm not coming from a background and a journey where I'm, you know, just able to just write about reports on the news and stuff does that make sense perfect sense yeah yeah i heavily relate actually yeah yeah exactly so we have to find ways to to get our, our voices heard and i think that this is a power thing as well definitely you know that i, th I look at i look at people who've perhaps had a more privileged route in into journalism and they don't feel the need to share their personal stories because they can have a career that doesn't rest on that and, and I sort of traded in my privacy to a certain extent to, to, for, for a voice, but also as well, I am, I'm a pretty open book, yummy, you know, so I, I do wear my heart on my sleeve and, and I'm somebody who, and this is what I've realized writing my book, clearly needs to talk about things. Yeah, I need to be heard. I need to be understood. And, you know, I have a friend who, who always says um, a problem shared is a problem halved. Yeah. And, and, I, and I really, I, I'm not a sort of sweep it under the carpet or forget about it kind of person. I, I'm, I'm somebody who needs to, to talk. So for me, this, this whole process has been really therapeutic. And I, I really do believe that it could provide an opportunity for some closure. And I know that I've had that when I've written about difficult periods of my life in my journalism. So for example, writing about relationships that honestly, maybe I still felt a certain you know kind of pain on some level but when I wrote about them it, it really gave me some closure and having other people read them and, and say oh I was in a relationship like that it almost made it real seeing it in black and white you know it mm. did mean something and I've taken something from it and, and now I've closed the door on it and I want to do that with 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 this really difficult period of my life now. Your second book, Shelfie, is Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte. Can you please give us a brief description about the book and when it was that you read it? I'm going to sound so shit now because I, um, I, I so it's been so many years since I since I read it. I can't actually remember what happens, just apart from the fact that they have this really tempestuous relationship that's told from. So there's like a framing device where the uh, narrator is sort of 
recounting a story from action that happened sort of 20 years previously Mm -hmm. and they have this really tempestuous relationship but the thing that really stuck with me is I think it's probably fair to say that they were pretty codependent um that you know it it wasn't it wasn't a healthy relationship shall we say and uh, I have been prone to codependency um so so I when I read that as a teenager I didn't I didn't realize you know I was enjoying it on that level but as an adult you know you have you have greater insight on that stuff but also I think the the reason I I I picked it is there is some regional dialect in there and I'm completely obsessed with regional dialects in uh, fiction because I think you know if you're from a place like I don't know say like Scotland or Ireland or, or even like Newcastle or, uh, or, or or Manchester or Birmingham you see your accent reflected in the culture somewhere somewhere yeah, yeah. With Nottingham, I knew that we didn't speak, you know, the standard English and there were words that I'd never heard on television, but I'd never sort of seen it in the culture. So that was quite confusing to me. So when, so I was really fascinated with seeing uh, regional dialects in the books that I was reading, but also for me, it's a feeling and I I don't really remember what happened in that book, but I remember how it made me feel. And I, I, I love things like that. It's not a very good description of it, is it? Shall I Google it? Shall I Google it? It is a book about a man and a woman. (laughs) I'm not even joking when I say pretty much all I remember is it was it um all I remember about it was the fact that it was about a very toxic <laughs> kind of yeah. back and forth between this couple and I remember reading it at school liking it but picking up the exact same things which just like oh this relationship seemed pretty um unhealthy yeah. and leaving it at that and I will confidently tell everybody that I've read it because as far as I, I was aware I have I just can't remember a single thing about it so do not worry yeah I want to talk a bit more about your book I think I remember saying to you that it was viscerally realistic. Like it, that I think my favorite thing about it is the fact that it truly reads as though you've just stumbled across the thoughts of Byron, essentially like a diary. And it, it just feels very, very, very real. And in that realness, there are conversations between characters that would potentially be seen as problematic. And we kind of discussed that because I remember you sort of saying like, oh gosh, I hope that this isn't misinterpreted. And I was saying that I think it's very important that it's part of that realism to make sure that people are saying what they really would have said at the time and accurately. I just wanted to kind of talk about that a little bit more just the, because I know that you kind of had thoughts around it and were like, I really want to make sure this isn't something that people take the wrong way. But you obviously decided that you were going to push through with authenticity. And I wanted to talk about why that was something that was important to you. Well, thank you very much. Um, for for the, for the for the kind words about it, it feeling very sort of um welcome uh like you're there kind of thing because i'm just so relieved to be at this stage because that's what i wanted and it's mm-hmm. it's like i'm now having the feedback that it it has worked you know it's you've done what you set out to do which is mm-hmm. which is wonderful but yeah i mean it is it is scary because I absolutely, my primary goal was that I wanted it to be authentic. That was so, so, so important to me. And the fact of the matter is, you know, as a kid on a council estate in the early noughties, the kind of conversations that we were having were not politically correct, shall Mm -hmm. we say. Um, And I thought, well... (laughs) I have a decision to make and, and I, and I, 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 I'm, I'm very interested in the truth. 
Mm. And I'm very interested in, uh, you know, sh sharing, sharing my story, warts and all. And, you know, listen, I don't, I don't come out of this book particularly well, you know, I mean, I, I go to Young Offenders Institute. So this isn't, this isn't like a sort of like um, rose tinted version of, you know, idealized version of life. I wanted to show life in all of its sort of messiness and its ugliness and its, it, its problematicalness, if that's mm. a word. Is that a word? Um, <laughs> I think you've just created a new one. I'm loving it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we, we'll use that. So, we'll so I, I do wonder if it might be shocking to people because we're just not used to seeing people speaking like that in, in, yeah. in, in 2021. In, in that context, obviously, I'm sure you know, some people do still talk like that, clearly, yeah. if you look at some online discourses. You know, and obviously, my intention is not to upset anybody mm. whatsoever so you know I was I was I was nervous I was I was I was a bit nervous sharing it with you and Rennie and 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 um pe people of color that I I really respect and uh you know if if people had sort of said you know we feel that you've got this wrong then I would absolutely you know be be open to that mm. um and and it's just really moving that everybody that I've shown it to so far has said we you know we we absolutely get this in context and mm. that was you know like my my sister is is mixed race and uh you know I, I read the parts out because I include some discussions that one of my mum's friends for example was was making uh would, would would make these jokes about you know racist jokes mm. and and I, I said to my sister you know how how do you feel hearing that that's how people were describing your mum at that time and and she said you know well, that's how people spoke. Mm. That that's how it was. So, I think we should have a conversation about this stuff because we have gone on a journey, and it's great now that we're all more careful. That we are, you know, trying to be more sensitive and be more understanding. But I think, you know, particularly in the social media age, it's sort of like, you know, jumping on people for for comments that they made you know, years ago, and I'm certainly not excusing mm. bad comments, you know, but it's like, I think to understand how we've got to here and this, 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 this place that we're at now, we need to understand where, where we came from. And I think a lot of this, sort of, I hate using the culture war stuff because I think it, it serves a certain agenda to think of this stuff as a culture war, but we know what's going on. There is this sort of divide between, uh, you know, the, the, the free speech people, you know, mm. and the side that I would consider myself to be on, which is, you know, can we have more respectful conversations about stuff? And I think a lot of young people maybe don't even know that some of these people that we're getting pushback from that are in their sort of 40s, 50s, 60s, mm. for them, the action of this book wasn't that long ago. And that's what we're dealing with. This is the mindset mm. that we're, we're, we're dealing with. And, and I just think it's really important to understand where we've come from, to understand where we are today and how, and how we move forwards. This podcast is made in partnership with Bailey's Irish Cream. Bailey's is proudly supporting the Women's Prize for Fiction by helping showcase incredible writing by remarkable women celebrating their accomplishments and getting more of their books into the hands of more people. Bailey's is the perfect adult treat, whether in coffee, over ice cream, or paired with your favourite book. Enjoying the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast? Share the literary love and be part of the future of the Women's Prize Trust by making a one-off donation to support our important work as a charity. 
Donations of all sizes help us to continue empowering women, regardless of their age, race, nationality or background, to raise their voice and own their story. Search for Support the Women's Prize to find out more. Tom Hanks is Otto. He's seen it all. Otto. Otto? O-T-T-O. You don't hear that name very often. I do. He's a man who gets easily annoyed. What are you doing? Parallel parking. Parallel to what? He has had enough. Are you always this unfriendly? I am not unfriendly. Okay, you're like a warm cuddle. But he's finding his joy again in the most unlikely place. I'm not sure about this. It's going to be very fun. A Man Called Otto, only in cinemas now. Acast recommends... This is Sports Horn. Hi, I'm Anthony Richardson, and I present the Ian Five Ankles Breakfast Show with former professional footballer turned current pundit Ian Five Ankles. He'd have 50 England caps if he wasn't Spanish. Listen to us on Sports Horn, the UK's third most popular sports radio network. I'm calling from Portsmouth, and I am absolutely disgusted. Wrong show, sorry, Colin. Oh, you'd love it if I rang into the wrong show, wouldn't you? So catch the Ian Five Ankles Breakfast Show only on Sports Horn. Sports Horn is a stack production and part of the ACAST Creator Network. ACAST is the home of podcasting, including such shows as The Logbooks, The High Performance Podcast, and the one you're listening to right now. We're going to move on to your third bookshelfie, which is The Colour Purple by Alice Walker. Give me a summary of this book and also tell me a bit about when you first read it. So I read this book at university and it is about a young woman, I think a girl at the start of the book, who is, in her own words, poor, black and ugly, which is a horrible, 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 horrible way to, uh, you know, did describe yourself as, 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 as ugly. And there's that great scene, I don't know if you've seen the movie with, you must have seen no. the movie with that, yeah, with, with, with Whoopi Goldberg, who's just amazing in it. And Oprah as well, isn't she? Yeah. Mm. And it's and it's about somebody who's marginalized and you know, just really experiencing um abuse, uh oppression, uh racism. And it's about this 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 person's story and struggle for for happiness, you know, in, in really sort of difficult circumstances, but also sort of you're getting uh, a very sort of vivid description of the world at that time. And she really, Alice Walker, the author, really, um, really recreates the world very vividly. It's written in African-American vernacular English. Mm, mm. Um, so it's the English that would, would have been used. I think it's, I think it's set in the South. Mm. Um, uh, so it's, it's that black vernacular. And, um, you know, when I read it, when I was like, 18, 19, it, it's hard to get into a voice like that in the first few pages. But once you're in, you're in. And I just remember this voice sticking with me and it absolutely puts you at a certain time and place and, and, and creates a universe. And it, and it sort of becomes this um, immersive experience, which, you know, when you're reading fiction, I, I want to be transported. I want to escape. I want to go into your world. I want to empathize. And I just think it's a really powerful technique. And, and also um, train spotting 
as well really really does that it absolutely puts you in a certain time and place but this this is maybe the first time that I'd, I'd really uh experienced it in in that way because you know with something like Wuthering Heights you get the dialect but it's just in little snippets and I and I sort of feel the way about that as I did every time Samantha would come on Sex in the City in that she was why I was watching it and every time she was on screen that was like gold you know and and every time I saw these uh dialects uh, you know for, for certain characters in books my brain would light up you know the reward mm. center so to have a whole book written in it I just lost lost myself in it and she's such a fantastic writer and it's so moving and it's it's just beautiful I just love it and I I'm, and it's one of those books that sort of stays with you you know and mm. and and it just it becomes part of your inner world and uh I always think of it when I when I see the color purple in nature and just that whole beautiful section that the title mm. is taken from. It's just it's just an incredibly beautiful, important, well crafted book. Thank you so much, Paris. Now I want to talk a little bit about your platform and and who you are and what you mean to to various people in the UK. Definitely, I mean, I I feel like you may humbly agree that you're certainly a trailblazer when it comes to the mainstream media um you're a lot of firsts and that can come with a great deal of pressure now i remember reading somewhere i cannot remember for the life of me where that you were sort of, you were sort of discussing your book and saying look like i don't believe there's such a thing as a man book a woman book or a trans book like yes this might be a book that speaks to my experiences as a trans woman but like this isn't necessarily a trans book and you kind of spoke about that whilst that will always be part of the story it's not necessarily the whole story and I suppose I'm interested in if you ever felt any sort of pressure to a write a book that was you know quote-unquote a trans book but also if you ever feel that pressure to be a role model as someone who has achieved so much and is so visible and is in such a minority as a visible trans woman it's quite a question. <laughs> there is, there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. Okay. Let, let's break this down. Um, okay. With with the is is this it, what kind of book is this? It's like well, obviously on some level, it it is a trans book in in the same way that David Cameron's memoirs are a man book because how can he write a book about his life? Or part of his life and it not necessarily be about being a man on some level because hmm. he is a man do you know what i mean in the mm -hmm. sense that, you know becoming by michelle obama you know it's it, is that is that a, a woman memoir mm. you know and and yes so it technically it is because she's a woman and she is speaking about her experiences as 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 a woman of color who's had a very specific life so for me it's just weird when people say well, you know people are expecting me to write a trans memoir but i get it because you know there is a sort of genre of uh you know and it's one of the, the few ways traditionally that trans women have actually had a voice yeah. is is writing a book that's all centered around your transition right i mean you tell me what is my book about so for me your book definitely speaks to me as a coming of age novel and it's it's messy it's a very very difficult read um it's as i said before viscerally realistic it's about mistakes it's about growth um it's about in many ways exploitation it's about 
being young and dumb and also simultaneously being young and smart and like kind of like um about class it's about various things which is why i asked the question because i feel like i certainly came away feeling like yeah it does touch on it does touch on certain themes that you know of course as you said like you know you're you're a trans woman who is writing a book about that is based on her experience so of course that comes into play but i feel that it if anything, if I had to choose one thing, I would say it read like a coming of age um, story, personally. And it's about, I mean, there's just so many different things, community, just various difficulties. It's, yeah, so it's a real kind of small, small sport, is that how you pronounce it? (laughs) Of of different things. Well, thank you. And, you know, I hope that most people will, will appreciate it on that level. But you know, I, I saw one of these reviews on, uh, on online and somebody had, had said, um, I hesitate to praise a trans memoir for being quite thin on the ground on trans stuff. But, you know, it was really refreshing. She doesn't go on about it that much. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, guess what? It's not a trans memoir. I never said it <laughs> right? was. You said it was. You said it was because that's what you were expecting from me. Not mm. not you, you, but you know this. Yeah, this of course, who'd left the review, and and I do understand why people are expecting that from me. But it just drives me crazy because you know I'm I'm always keen to point out. I know that I'm well known for talking about trans stuff, and I'm proud of it, right? And it and it's an important thing, and I will continue to use my voice to just try and encourage people to just not be so unpleasant to trans mm. people, but like some of the most high profile stuff that I've done, I went on question time twice. I didn't even talk about being trans, Mm, mm. you know, my vice columns, which some of which have aged terribly, let me say, but you know, I, they were like the most read things on the website Mm -hmm. and had nothing to do with nothing to, Mm. didn't even mention being trans in them. So it, but it, but it's like when you are a trans, it's like that is the only thing people can see about you. So mm-hmm. obviously people think, oh, she's 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 written a trans memoir, and I just think if you think that you're going to be disappointed when you get this book, because I do talk about it, because as I say, it, I can't write a book about my life in which I'm not trans because mm-hmm. I am. But that's for me, that's not what the book's about. You Absolutely. Know? Mm-hmm. So yeah, but but I do feel a duty, not a pressure, a duty to try and use my voice but I can tell you I like writing books and I wrote this because I wanted to tell a good story I love storytelling and I've got stories Mm -hmm. to tell and life is short let me tell you I don't want a career where I'm arguing with people on news night for the rest of my life honestly just can't think of anything worse and actually Rennie Odo Lodge had a huge impact on me in that way because you know she had this huge book out. I think she just got a certificate saying that she sold five hundred thousand copies, right? Which has made like a huge, huge, huge impact. And you don't see her going on the news arguing with people or or getting drawn into this sort of nonsense and this this sort of culture war stuff. And I think that she really changed the way I, I think think about that stuff. And I thought this is how I want to move forward mm-hmm. I want to be respected for my writing and I want to put out books that are received well I don't want to be writing comment pieces and I don't want to be constantly arguing about why I have the right to live my life with indignity mm-hmm. and safety you know thank you so much we're just about to get to any now because your fourth bookshelfy is why I'm no longer talking to white people about race by Rennie Edo Lodge. So can you tell me a little bit more about this book and the 
impact that Rennie as an author has had on you? So this is a book about, uh, I guess, the hidden history of uh, race relations and racism in the UK, which just had never really read anything like that before. And I mean, she is a trailblazer. She really started a conversation with 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 that, you know, for for, for our, our our generation. And um, I guess you could say that it's a polemical, but for me, it was just a very sort of we're just having a conversation about some things that happened, and I'm going to tell you about them. So I found that very um, very powerful. It's you know, again, she she is somebody who is who is interested in the truth you know and and let's talk about this stuff that we don't usually talk about and that that I certainly wasn't taught at school and um I just I just think she's absolutely amazing I am a Renier de Lodge stan I am <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm I'm in the fan club and you know I, I don't know how I don't know how much she took she she talks about her 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 life, uh, her personal life. Um, but I, I don't think it's a secret to say that, you know, she didn't have her career handed to her on a silver platter. Um, and I just really respect that, that she's had such a successful career and she's, she's had such a successful book in, in so many different ways, not just the sales, you know, the impact mm-hmm. that it's made, the conversation that it started, the other books that have come after Mm -hmm. her um which I think it's fair to say you know she's she's inspired a lot of thinking and writing and talking on 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 this subject and I just also really respect those writers who they're not just churning books out every couple of years she has something to say she said it she made an impact and now she's doing her thing and will we get another book out of her when she's got something to say, I hope so. But at the moment, she's 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 you know she she's not rushing to just get another one out hot, mm-hmm. hot on the heels of the success of this one. And I respect that because I think that she is a really serious person, you know. And you know, I have pretensions of of being a serious person. Um, I'm absolutely ridiculous, actually. But um, <laughs> I yeah, I just really, really, I just really respect her, and and she's been so supportive and and, and lovely and sweet to me. And you know, the, there's this chapter in there on the hostility that she received as a young black woman trying to put forward an anti-racist perspective within feminism within the British media Mm. and it's just very interesting to me that a lot of the hostility that she faced came from the same sort of people and in some cases the same people that I was facing at the same time trying to put forward um, an anti-transphobic perspective in, in those same spaces. And so, you know, I, I am from a council estate and it, it, is, it is really difficult sort of navigating the British media, you know, which, which isn't always a welcoming place to, 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 to people, you know, who are, who are trying to speak truth to power. And I'm so glad that she exists in the world on a personal level as a friend, but also just as a, a writer that we were just very, 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 very lucky to have. And I just really, re- I really respect the way that she, she puts her energy and her voice out mm. in, 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 into the world. Yeah. I'm a fan. Can you tell? 
<laughs> just a bit, just a bit. <laughs> but who isn't? Before we get to your fifth and final bookshelf, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the fact that, you know, you said that you'd sort of just made a, you know, real decision that you were not going to spend the rest of your career backing off all thing on Newsnight. But even aside from that, I noticed that you, because I know of you basically through your vice columns. That's how I first came right. across you and your work. I used to read them religiously and your tweets as well. And you've definitely taken a bit of a step back from Twitter. And yeah. I think I recall you actually saying that, you know, that, you know, kind of doing a little sort of PSA about it and saying, look, like this just isn't for me anymore. I'm interested in how easy a decision that was to make because for many writers it feels like Twitter is our lifeblood and if we're not on it we're missing out and how your life has I suppose changed the less you having chosen to engage with that platform and just generally social media. Well can I just say those vice columns they were and they did sort of encourage me to be controversial and some of those things I wouldn't quite write in the way that I wrote at that time. I can imagine yeah but 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 they definitely put you out there. What the, can I just say? They were so fun to write. They were so <laughs> incredibly fun to write. I don't think I've ever had as much fun writing some of those. They were absolutely crazy and ridiculous. Um, and, and people loved them as well, but they also, you know, they had, they got a strong reaction from people, shall we say. Um, but, but that's a Rennie thing as well. They, they're not going on the social media. You know, she, you don't see Rennie getting caught up in nonsense on Twitter. You know, she comes on every now and again. She says what she's got to say. And everybody, like, it's always, like, she only says something if she's got a good point. And, and, and she, she taught me about this idea of not being reactive, because my whole career was reactive. I was reacting to something that somebody was saying in the media. You know, I was reacting to some horrible person coming forward and just saying something really nasty about trans mm-hmm. people, and then feeling like I'd got to pitch a piece to, um, you know, a, a news paper to get paid like a couple of hundred quid you know I don't think it's healthy and I think listen the Trump thing really scared me and and the Brexit things really scared me and it and it does relate to those vice columns actually because I did a lot of real soul searching over over the past few years and really sat down and asked myself you know what role have I played in this like increasingly polarized toxic argumentative sort of conflict-driven journalism and media landscape. And I, I just don't want to be a part of it anymore. I genuinely really I do not want to be part of that obverse journalism and everything being an argument. Because are you happy with, with, with where we are now? Do you think this is a healthy space for us to be in? Definitely. I, and and I, I really encourage all of these journalists and these, these commissioners and the editors who are involved in this. Yeah, it's great for hit, hits, you know, and clicks. But look at what it, it's literally tearing us apart. It's mm-hmm. tearing this country apart and it's tearing international re- relations apart. And mm-hmm. yeah, I know there's always been problems and in some ways things are much better. You know, I probably wouldn't have had the career that I'd had without social media. This is social mm. media, you know, and it's great that we get to have these conversations and connect with, with different people. So, you know, I'm not just being, you know, oh, you know, the new technology is, is, is terrible, but let's be honest, it, it has created some really serious problems that we haven't got to grips with yet. And, and I think a lot of it was validation as well, Yomi, you know, cause you know, from reading my book, I grew up feeling like I wasn't good enough. Mm. And so if you're putting extreme 
viewpoints or really strong language or sort of, uh, you know, over the top outlandish statements and images online and, and thousands of people are liking and retweeting them. That's highly validating. Mm. If you're getting invited onto the news and radio shows and things like that, it, for me, it was attention seeking. And I see a lot of really damaged people who it, it's, it's just like throwing a log on the fire for the, mm. for, for the, for the media, you know, and I've done a lot of therapy over the past few years and really have investigated why am I doing this? And I think it's fair to say I was using social media in quite an addictive way and not a healthy way. Whereas now it's just a tool for my, my, my work. It's a way for me to connect with people who followed me and supported me for years and the, and the communities that, 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 that we've built there. And also, you know, I do have that platform to try and try and speak up and, and, and try and, you know, try and just call for kindness. And I feel like such a, such a, uh, Pollyanna, you know, sometimes because, Oh, please can't everybody just be nice. But I'm just like, <laughs> you know, I, I just, for me, the heat has gone up too much. And I'm like, can we all just calm down a little bit here? Because I think we could potentially be going into a very, 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 very scary, dangerous place in, 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 in society. I mean, am I the only person that's feeling that? Is it just me? No, am I paranoid? Absolutely not. <laughs> I think it definitely feels like we're in the tipping point of something quite big. Um, and it can be a bit overwhelming. And I think like, Twitter and social media definitely just stoke up that fire like yeah. on a daily basis it's a lot and can I just say as well like I always meet guys on like on like dating apps and they're like oh you're nothing like what I thought that you'd be like because I think they think that I'm just constantly complaining about trans rights all the time when actually like I consider myself to be quite relaxed and mm. I like having fun and it may surprise people that actually I don't really talk about being trans in my everyday life. And that social media stuff is just that I feel that politically I need to use my voice to, to push back against the, the sort of the nastiness that I see. Um, and I, and I just, I, I'm just sick of, I'm so sick of that being my, my public profile, which is why I wrote the book, the way I wrote it. I wanted to make people laugh. I wanted to make people cry. I wanted them to enjoy it. And I just wanted to have some fun. I'm so sick of being so fucking earnest all the time you know like so yeah I'm, and I'm just not doing it so this this is this is new me I'm writing books that people enjoy and um I'm not I'm not getting drawn into social media nonsense all right Parish, your fifth and final book shelfie this week is simple passion by Annie No. please tell us what this book is about and when you read it this is a book by a woman, a French woman, and it's so French. And it's it's about her sexual relationship with, it's a younger man. And it's, uh, I think he may even be in a relationship, but in any case, it's not, uh, it's, it's just a sexual thing. They just hook up sometimes, but she becomes preoccupied with him and she awaits his visits. And um, she's, I don't know if she's in love, but she's, she's definitely in lust. And it's, it's so clever and it's so simply written because, so I've been learning, I've been learning French and uh, the first book that I read in French was so hard. And I was consulting the dictionary and Google translate. And there's this thing, you know, where you can actually put the camera on a page and Google will translate it for you. 
like mm-hmm. it's it's not perfect but it's you know it really helped me oh yeah and, I've seen that. W- with with that first book, which was which was actually Edouard Louis, who whose whose story is actually very very similar to mine, and 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 that helped me actually get through that book, and he's fantastic. And then I have this problem because I'm like, I want to read books for my level of French, which is you know it it can't be too complicated, but I also don't want to read trash, right? So it, it's got to have some sort of artistic merit to it, and. Annie Erno is perfect because she just writes so simply, so clear, such lovely, crisp, simple prose, but it's beautiful and it's clever and it's intelligent, but it, it's not trying to be clever or, or have really complicated sentences or it, it's just, it's just really honest, clear writing. And I just love it. And to me, to be reading something in French, is just amazing like I never thought that I could I could do this and it's been a long-term uh, goal of mine because I absolutely love Flaubert and he used to obsess over every word so I've I've wanted since I was at university so you know oh gosh over a decade now I've wanted to get to a reading level in French that I could read Flaubert in the in the original French and um and I guess that what what Annie is doing is is similar to what I'm doing in the sense that she's written about her life. So these, these are, these are things that she's lived and she's experienced, but they've got this real literary quality and, and it could be a novel, you know? And I, I think that there, cause Edward Louis would fit into that. I think that auto fiction is kind of a thing here. There's a lot of people who write novels that are sort of a bit semi-autobiographical, right? And there's, you know, a lot of literary memoirs that you know you think all oh, have people sort of it's just a stylized version of the truth like I think there's a lot of overlap there and mm. um yeah I, I just love it I just love it because I love the beauty of reading fiction but you know sometimes you just read really sort of like straight autobiographies and it's like and then this happened and then that happened and you know some periods of your life are more interesting than others and mm. I've got a short attention span and I just think these days we're in an attention economy and, you know, I just, I want a book that's really well written from start to finish. I want my money's worth, you know me. <laughs> Thank you so much, Paris. You've been an incredible guest. I have one last question, which is the hardest actually, which is if you had to choose one book from your list as your favourite, which one would it be and why? <sighs> this is so difficult. I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm going to say The Life and Loves of a She-Devil just because I read it just, just as I'd hit puberty and was absolutely fascinated about sexual politics, you know, and male and female relationships and money. She talks a lot about money and, and power and about being an ad, you know, being a person. But mm. I hadn't read a book like that that explored those themes before. And and it just hit me at the right time. And I think obviously because I felt so powerless as a child and, you know, had these sorts of, you know, fantasies of having some agency over what my life could be like. It just hit me at the right time. And it's just... yeah, it's just hilarious. So I'm gonna I'm going to say very well done. Yeah. Paris, thank you so much for being such a brilliant guest. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. I'm Yomi Kay, and you've been listening to the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast, brought to you by Baileys and produced by Birdline Media. 
head to our website www.womensprizeforfiction.co.uk where you can discover this year's shortlist of six incredible books. Make sure you hit subscribe because the next episode is a special book club edition where we'll be discussing two of the titles shortlisted for this year's prize, Yagyasi's Transcendent Kingdom and Unsettled Ground by Claire Fuller. So if you haven't already got your copies, now's the time to do it. Please rate and review this podcast. It's the easiest way to help spread the word about the female talent you've heard about today. Thanks very much for listening and see you next time. Tom Hanks is Otto. He's seen it all. Otto. Otto? O-T-T-O. You don't hear that name very often. I do. He's a man who gets easily annoyed. What are you doing? Parallel parking. Parallel to what? He has had enough. Are you always this unfriendly? I am not unfriendly. Okay, you're like a warm cuddle. But he's finding his joy again in the most unlikely place. I'm not sure about this. It's going to be very fun. A man called Otto, only in cinemas now.